0: Today's episode of the VeloNews Podcast, brought to you by InsideTracker.com. When you love what you do, like running, bike racing, like enjoying the great outdoors, you want to do it for life inside tracker can help you achieve that inside tracker was founded in 2009 by leading scientists in aging genetics and biometrics inside tracker analyzes your blood your DNA your lifestyle and your nutrition habits and tells you how to live look age and perform better using their patented algorithm inside tracker analyzes your body's data to provide you with a clear picture of what's going on inside and to offer you science back recommendations for positive diet and lifestyle changes then inside tracker tracks your progress every day and helps you reach your performance goals, as well as helping you live a longer, healthier life. For a limited time, listeners of the Velo News podcast can get 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash VeloNews to uh, claim your discount and check out some really cool products. Thanks so much to InsideTracker for sponsoring today's episode. Let's get on with the show. Welcome back to the Vail News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you on Monday. It's July 5th. I hope everyone out there had wonderful uh, July 4th barbecues and family events and getaways and that you all were not stuck In traffic like I was this morning coming back from the mountains. Oh, me and everyone else decided to get an early jump on the commute back to life. And uh, recording this one a little later in the day than usual because I've been uh, bumper to bumpering down I-70 back to Colorado's front range. Me and uh, half of the people probably listening to the podcast today. Uh, We have a great show coming up today. Um, We have James Start and Andrew Hood over in France talking about what it's like to be a media member at the 2021 Tour de France in terms of access and storytelling and how often you're able to get to the athlete's and how often you're not able to get to the athletes and what that means for what you are all reading on various websites and in uh, newspapers and stuff around the world right now. Um, Then I hit them with a a doozy of a question today, and this is coming from what I've been seeing on many of our social media feeds. Um, Can you believe in Tadej Pogacar's performance? Uh, We have, uh, we're recording this Monday, we're coming out of a weekend where Pogacar absolutely took the scruff of the neck of the Tour de France, uh, kicked his rivals down, attacked again and again and again, and took a pretty convincing lead in the race that barring some type of week three collapse, which, hey, it's bike racing. We see this from time to time. Um, He is on track to defend his win from 2021. And we've seen plenty of people chiming in on social media and emails and stuff saying, ah, we don't believe in Tade Pogacar. This has to be the work. Of you know science and nefarious activities and all the other stuff that uh, we came to assume in cycling. Uh, being cycling fans during, uh, during that era uh, not so long ago. And so I posed the guys with the question, you know, they've both been covering the Tour de France for upwards of 20, 25 years, and uh, whether or not um, they believe in Tadej Pogacar and um, signs that they can point to or interviews they've done or sources they've talked to uh, that help them feel one way or the other. Um, second half of the show, we have an interview with Sepp Kuss, Coming to us from the Tour de France, Andy Hood talked to him, I believe, at the beginning of Stage 9. And Sept takes us inside some of the setbacks and heartache at Team Jumbo Visma and how his progress at this year's tour is coming on. And then I have uh, a conversation with Lawson Craddock. That's right, American Lawson Craddock. He is not racing the Tour de France this year. He is getting ready to go race the Tokyo Olympics. But that means that Lawson is like you and me, folks. He's watching the Tour de France, and he has some interesting insight and takes on what he is seeing from this year's race that make it seem uh, different and kind of bizarre compared to uh, a typical Tour de France or some of the Grand Tours that he has raced in. So uh, thanks to Lawson for chiming in today. And we are going to continue to have special guests like Brent Bookwalter, Lawson Craddock, other Americans calling in throughout the Tour de France to talk about the race and what's going on in their own respective worlds. Uh, So without further ado, I am going to toss it to Andrew Hood and James Start coming to us from rest day number one over at the Tour de France. And then we'll uh, kick it to the interviews in the second half of the show.
1: All right, welcome back to the Val News Podcast. I'm Andrew Hood with James. Stark. We are in a posh four-star hotel right next to the ski run in Valdezir. How good is that? Yeah.
2: I like Valdezir. It's a nice town. We got the cold, you uh-huh. just on the other side, which is one of the great, great climbs and some you know mammoth slopes if you're into skiing. Um, yeah, it was, it's a pretty great place to be. And certainly, considering some of the dives we've had the last few nights, there's there's always payback on the tour. The riders get it too. There's like a star system, and and the teams are like allotted. Uh, Jens Wott, uh, told me this a few years. The teams like they get allotted um, a certain amount of stars or points. And, you know, the tour works it out. So every team has some good hotels and some bad hotels. And that's the way it is for us. And we had some, you know, some of those highway stop hotels that were pretty, uh, pretty gruesome at the end of a long day. But this is very, very, very much a welcome a uh, place to be on, on a rest day after yeah, nine right. very hard stages. I mean, every day was a new bag of tricks. Every day was thrown. The tour was throwing something at the riders and at us. Yeah, I mean, uh, nine days into this Tour de France, it feels like we've been on the race for two or, or three
1: weeks. Hmm. Uh, plus, so much has happened, and uh, so much drama in and out of the race. But you know, this year, James, uh, we're back at the at the Tour de France. Uh, COVID nineteen. You know it's not as quite as uh, severe as it was last year just in terms of the numbers of cases and how the whole health situation was across europe but it continues to impact uh, journalists and the media and the overall kind of tour de france experience um you know just Speaking personally, James is a photographer. I'm more uh, on the word side. And, uh, you know, it's really impacting our jobs uh, like last year, as well as this year with the media protocols and restrictions. So James, let's start with you. I mean, as a photographer, you know, how is it impacting your ability to do your job and and what, what are you missing out with these restrictions?
2: Well, for the fa- last two years, you know, at least half, maybe two thirds of the sort of picture taking that I would often do isn't just no longer possible. I always have had um, you know, obviously the racing is, 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 is important but I've also done some behind the scenes stuff I always climb into some team buses during the tour that's for the last two years totally impossible um, also I've uh, really loved um, sometimes not just photographing the finish but really trying to capture the emotions of the riders after the finish uh, and I've had some of my best pictures ever after the finish with the emotion and those are pictures that I just can no longer take. So that's been really frustrating. I don't know if any of that's going to change in the future. I, I have no idea. Uh, the one thing that has uh, that's changed for the better is the fans are back. Um, that was something that was not uh, a factor last year, and it's nice to see them back.
1: Yeah, just to let the fan, let the let the listeners know how how the situation works with the Tour de France. Um, typically, you know, it's been part of the Tour tradition really over over the centuries and decades of the race is that. The, the sport has been close to the people, it's been close to the media. You know, it's not in a stadium. Uh, it's not, uh, you know, behind, uh, you know, uh, like the Olympics where it's almost a televised event. You know, that's part of the draw and the allure of the Tour de France is how close everyone could get to the writers and the actors. So with COVID, they instituted these uh, maybe social distancing rules. Uh, they're keeping the written press like me into what's called a mixed zone, kind of a corral area where we're all uh, stuck into boxes, we're spaced out. We have to put our uh, uh, our microphones on selfie sticks. Everyone's masked up, and uh, but so that really limits our access to the riders and and mainly to the sport directors and and the team managers because normally in a normal year. A journalist can go into the, the paddock area where all the teams park at the at the beginning and end of every stage. And that's where you get all the good stuff, right? You get the gossip, like James goes under the, into the team buses and takes photos in the meetings. You know, I'm talking to the Soignier about, you know, what the, what the chatter was at the dinner table the night before. And right now, that is just like everything is off limits. So it's like journalism by press release and by like two-minute grabs at the start.
2: I'm going to be really curious to see how that evolves. I was talking with Fabrice Tiano, the the uh, main press officer for the tour the other day um, about some of the different restrictions. Um, much to my chagrin, he said, I think that uh, the finish line, after the finish line, is going to continue to be pretty much clamped down. It just, For him, it was too crazy, and he likes what he sees, uh, having the riders and the, not not having the photo- photographers and mixing it up so much, so I may uh, have to close a cha- that chapter of, of, of my work. Um, but he said that in his it's his hope that the panics will open up again next year he said that is not in aso's interest to have them closed off um because there's no reason for journalists to come if that's the case but he said that is aso's wish he said we're not the only uh people deciding this and maybe the uci will say this is great maybe the teams will say hey this is great on having journalists roaming around and they'll put some pressure on the uci and all of a sudden aso goes "Ah, well sorry journalists you're not going to be coming in anymore you're done yeah and that will be a game changer but i mean and i told him i said um you do know there's fewer journalists here on the race than than there ever has been oh for sure and there will be fewer and fewer if that continues because there's no reason to come just to get post-race quotes by the winner um you know that just it's just not worth it and you know we at villainous had to make this decision this year um and you know it was a hard decision because we've had often several teams here on the ground and everybody looks forward to come to the tour and it's just you and i um where and a lot of the staff are Working, working out of the offices, um, fetching all of the, the quotes that are coming in from all the, the different teams all during the day, uh, it's time efficient, but it's, it's, it's hard to, to come up with something that's, that's real, and, and that's what you, you get at the paddocks.
1: Yeah, it's been, I've had a few interesting conversations with journalists, uh, colleagues of mine over the last week or so, just about, you know, what is missing by not having this access? You know, what is uh, the Tour de France story, the larger narrative? What are the media and really the fans missing out on? And someone brought up the, the good example of uh, Michael Rasmussen, you know, back in 2007, uh, you know, he was uh, basically run out of the Tour de France right. by the media, really by the media poking around uh you know really going after him and uh his rubble bank then rubble bank management getting them pinning them up, you know getting them on the record saying you know have you done this have you done that where were you what were you doing who were you doing it with and man in, in today's uh, environment you know a situation like that repeating itself that that situation might have just gone all the way to paris right. because we don't have that chance to ask the questions. Like mm-hmm. the other day, just for example, um, there was a little kerfuffle at the finish line between uh, Enrique Moss and Michael Kiewiczowski. They were just exchanging words and kind of uh, something unhappy in the in the stage happened. So, uh, you know, it was picked up uh, by somebody, videotaped it, put it on Twitter. So we're trying to find out, you know, what really was behind that. Uh, but of course, the Team PR says, oh, boop, boop, boop. you know, don't talk, Both Kiewiczowski and Moss were told not to talk to the media. We couldn't get a straight answer out of it. You know, you're working some back sources trying to find out what really happened. We kind of later found out it was like, uh, Kiwikowski might've caused some crash in the bunch with his feedback and there were some nerves there. But those are the kind of things that are right now, very, very difficult to get.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, and complicated by, you know, the masks. Um, you know, you're sitting here in a mix-in with guys in masks at a certain distance. You know, everybody's uncomfortable working and you, know, you ask a writer an un- uncomfortable question or a staff member, and they just, you know, they got three microphones in their face and it's just like next question. It's a very easy option for them to take, for anybody to take in such a situation. You can't even blame them because it's already, you know, we're, we're in a situation at the mix zone where you don't really want to be there. Nobody wants, it's, it's, it's just not conducive to um, constructive exchange. Um, so it becomes very standardized. Um, and it's hard to ask a lot of questions. I, I was chatting with, uh, Luke Ensinger, uh who is the uh, works for the Riders Union. Uh, he was a press officer for many years, works for the Riders Union. And I was chatting with him at the Giro d'Italia. He came for a day, and he was asking me, you know, what are you seeing from your, you know, the questions we're talking about? How has it been uh, in the last year or so? And he said, you know, I'll be honest. I've always thought that the mixed zones were a good idea, at least for some of the reporting. For example, and uh, the example he gave, which is not, um, which is not. Um, absurd by any means. He said, you know, remember back in the day, you all had, a, you have a couple teams and you each posted a certain bus. I'm going to get, I'm going to get this guy. I'm going to get that guy. And you would often have to wait there, be the first, talk to the press office, know you're number one or two or three on the list and wait until that person came out. And by the, ha- the time that happened, you had very little chance to do anything else. And he said, well, now, you know, you can just wait for all the big riders to come through the mix zones and get them as you want. He said, that doesn't mean the paddocks shouldn't still be open. Uh, because there's lots of other stories that you might want to be doing, lots of smaller riders or a mechanic or this or that. And you're not going to be able to get all those guys in the mix zone. Um, but he said it might be a way to just get you know, the standard quotes from the big hitters, the big players of the day, and where you as journalists can actually get more. I don't know. What do you think, Andy?
1: Yeah, no, that's it, certainly true on certain occasions because I mean we've all had the experiences of uh, you know, waiting for a rider. to say, yeah, I'll talk to you after the team meeting. Uh, who'll be inside the team bus and you're waiting there, waiting there, waiting there. And then uh, they'll step off and say, oh, I'm running late for sign-in, I have to go. Yeah. So, you know, some days you don't get anything. Uh, but that really hasn't changed with the, with the mix zone because some days in the MIG zone, uh, you know, the big the big favorites are up by the TV zone. Uh, so, a lot of them they don 't get down really to kind of where we are where the written press is, but some of those secondary writers you know you know, they do roll past one at a time, and you can 't grab various people, so some days it 's actually not too too bad but what we 're really missing out on is is uh, uh, talking to the sport directors talking to the team managers talking to the coaches and the yeah. team staffers that you know they're hanging around the
2: team bus right. while
1: you're waiting for that guy to come off yeah, the team we'll
2: bus chatting with him you, getting some background
1: yeah you're talking to the sport director and say hey what happened yesterday what are you guys going to be doing two days from now and that that for me at least is what we're really missing and you know sometimes we do have contacts with, with the sport directors you know through whatsapp or you can just give them a call sometimes but uh, you know that that's the real limitation like James said the expectation is uh, hopefully that will come back to normal next year. But yeah, I mean, uh, what James said about the finish line scrums, I mean, those were some of the most uh, chaotic and just truly wild experiences in my experience here at the Tour de France when, you know, Cavendish wins like in a typical Tour, if he got that 31st win, I mean, it would be a scrum of 30 journalists in there sticking their microphones and you being there with your camera. Mm-hmm. I mean, it would be kind of it, it, extreme chaos. So maybe easing that back out maybe makes sense.
2: No, we'll see. Um, well, anyway, let's not talk about our own hardships because it's been a really hard race for all the riders and um, a pretty great race in a lot of ways. I mean, just I don't know when I've seen so many surprises. Every day is so unexpected. And and the one thing that is great about it, the tour is that, you know, there are so many sub lines and, and, and so many... Alternative stories happening at the same time. I mean, we've had a great story um, here with Mark Cavendish in the green jersey, and the green jersey in recent years has often been one of the better stories. I find um, when you got a, you know, when you got a guy in yellow with the dominant team, and and there's not a lot of suspense going on for the yellow. Some of these other, uh, you know, who's going to get the mountains jersey, and, you know, the green are really interesting. And this one, the green has been tremendous. I mean, Cavendish has come back yesterday. He made the time cut. I mean, Colbrelli is, is going for green, too. Um, he went out and got that, gotten the breakaway with scoring points, got third at the finish, a, a huge ride. But as long as Cavendish finished, he was still going to be in green, and he finished by barely two minutes under the time cut. He was exhausted and elated. It was, it was amazing.
1: Yeah, you're right. Those those uh, those kind of races within the race are always, always fascinating. Uh, the time cut's going to be a huge issue for Cavendish going forward. But, you know, looking looking at what's happening at the front of the race, Todé uh, Pagatiar is just steamrolling this Tour de France. Uh, I mean, yesterday, uh, you know, what he did Saturday, I think you compared it to uh, Eddie Merckx in 1969. Some people compared it to what Froome did at the, at the Giro in 2018. Just a long-distance attack totally changes the, 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 the dynamic and the narrative of the race and uh, he did it again you know yesterday I think the UAE team was is, is stepping up and, and uh, he just came over the top of Carapaz but those kinds of performances are inevitably raising these questions of you know it, is it uh, it's know, but natural or you know the peloton at two speeds um, you know have you hearing a lot of that chatter from people you talk to about Pagatya?
2: I haven't I mean you're, you're always going to you know, the sport has had um, so many issues in the past that it's impossible, uh, or it's inevitable at least, that there are going to be questions to any overwhelming performance. Um, but, you know, the kid won the Tour de year uh, He's been performing at the highest level since he turned pro three stages in the in his first tour of Spain, won his first tour of France. You know, maybe he's the next Eddie Merckx. Who knows? Uh, I don't know. But, um, you know, I'm an American. I grew up. Uh, you know, believing in the uh, American legal system and you're innocent until proven guilty, and I don't have any reason to think otherwise right now. So, and it comes a point, you know, you just, you know, if you if you spend all your time doubting, why are you here? Yeah. You know, it just comes a point, it takes the fun out of it, and I prefer to to focus on the the beauty of the sport as much as I can, unless something's you know obviously really disturbing, but I'm not really disturbed here.
1: Yeah, I mean what happens so much today of course is people just look look at uh, the performances through the kind of the the prism of of what happened, you know, 20 years ago yeah. when when they were unbelievable and there was just so much out there about what was going on. And, uh, you know, people are still, you know, a lot of people I hear pick up on social media. People just simply believe that, that the Peloton these days, they're, they're doing the EPO, they're doing the human growth hormones, they're doing the corticoids, yeah. they're doing, uh, you know, uh, steroids, they're doing blood transfusions, all that goody stuff that, that what was going on for, for a good part of the, you know, for, much of like our careers. yeah, much of our yeah. careers. Um, you know, so people just cannot believe that they're not doing that anymore. Yeah. And then on top of that, you have all the, the rumors of uh, motor doping, you know, using, using motors in, in, in a bicycle.
2: Yeah, it's, I, I just don't go there, man. It just becomes, I might as well just retire, go fishing, do something else. You know, <laughs> something that, it's just not, it, it's really hard for me to, to even enjoy being here if, if that's all I'm going to do. And I think also the fact that um, a lot of my reporting has been photo-driven, um, it changes things, you know, for me, because I'm definitely focused on the drama and the beauty of the sport and um, it's kind of where I'm at with it. So unless something, you know, unless I, unless some stories come out with some, somebody coming up with some real questionable information, I'll take it at face value, um, you know. But then, hey, we can't go into the mixed zones, or we can't go into the buses, so we can't ask those questions, so we can't come up with any, anything. We just, you know, it's maybe, maybe it would be different if we could, but I don't know.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of uh, guilt by association sometimes with these riders like a Pogacar, you know, some of the team management or some of more notorious figures uh, in the cycling past. Uh, You know, Sylvania sometimes has had uh, kind of its fair share of of doping cases recently. So uh, there's, I think, some of that. Gets into kind of how people look at Pagacher. Uh But, you know, not to prick a uh, needle in all, in all of this argument, I'm not, there's no way I'm going to stick my hand in the, in the fire, so to speak, and say that cycling is clean. Or it's cleaner. I believe it's quite a bit cleaner than it used to be. But, you know, every day, the Tour de France, at the Tour de France, and at most major races, you know, they are checking the bikes. You know, this idea that they're, they're all using motors, hidden motors, I think is just unlikely. I mean, even mm. last year at the Tour de France, they were disassembling all the bikes sure. of the top riders at the top of the Col de Lowe's last year, yeah. they took apart Robich's bike. They yeah. took it apart. They're scanning them. They have an x-ray machine and they're doing that to dozens and dozens of bikes okay. every day of all the top riders. So yeah. I think, you know, maybe that might have happened in the past. We don't know. But right now, I seriously doubt that could be a major issue.
2: You know, I mean, one thing there's, I mean, I, I prefer to focus on what is, what are reasons to believe uh, whenever I can. And as long as I can come up with some some logical uh, explanation that you know with my 30 plus years experience in sport adds up and makes sense to me then I'm going to go with that instinct again unless um, you know reports are coming out that seem very credible to the contrary but you know like I was talking with um, Gonchar, uh, Bora Hansgrove's uh, mechanic and, and, and Sagan's personal mechanic and just when we were chatting about bikes he's a, he's a friend of mine he's a wonderful person and um and knows bikes well he was a racer and, and now he's a mechanic and I just said, you know, what's the biggest change you've seen in bikes uh since you've been a racer or working on? He just I said, you know just said the bikes today are so fast. I mean they're so light, they're so stiff, uh the rolling resistance is is, is, is less than it's ever been. They just like these things go. So that that that's something that um you know, you have to take into consideration. And outside of the roundabouts and all the speed bumps, you know, roads are better and better. They're not what they used to be. Um, so, you know, there are reasons for bicycle racing being as fast as, as it's been. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I'm pretty skeptical about motors at this day and age. There may have been a few riders that managed to get them in for a few rides uh, in professional cycling, but I don't think there was ever 20% of the peloton rolling around the Tour de France with motors.
1: Yeah. And, and then the question of, you know, how much uh, riders are doping these days. Um, the general sense that I hear from people is that uh, the days of, of the blatant organized doping with it and teams, that has all ended for a variety of reasons. Uh, mainly uh, sponsors and the culture has changed in the sense of, uh, doesn't look good for our sponsors. Well, it doesn't look good, and sponsors will bolt, and the teams know they have too much to lose. Uh, whereas that was not always the case in the past. Um, and plus, you know, the, the, the anti-doping controls have dramatically in, in, improved since the days of twenty twenty-five years ago. You know, people like to say, "Oh, it's easy to avoid test." Lance never tested positive, but it's a lot harder to avoid tested, testing positive these days if you are glowing hot. Yes. Now, granted, there could be some micro dosing. Uh, you know, maybe some EPO microdosing still going on, some uh, microdosing of blood doping. But, you know, if it's a microdose, it's going to have a much more minimal effect than, you know, if these guys are all just filling up the gas tank with a premium uh, unleaded, <laughs> you know, back, back in the day. High octane. High octane. Um, but, you know, what we're hearing is, um, you know, all the old school doping products are not being used. But what they are perhaps using are some of these, you know, kind of on the edge of, uh, you know, le- legality issues because teams don't want to cross that line in terms of, you know, what is banned? So there are looking four ways of going inside, you know, the, the, the anti-doping book, uh, you know, the rule book is a thousand pages long. So you get a good lawyer or some experts to parse that thing and you can find, just like a, the tax code, you can find some wiggle room where it's a gray area where you can manipulate and just work within the rules but get some benefit and a lot of that we're hearing is you know with some of these uh you know uh, products that are not banned right now people are, are doing anything they can do that's not banned. it's not cheating officially uh and then also uh you know a lot of uh, you know dietary issues the main thing is the weight you know the, the doping now is not performance enhancing but it's like recovery and just building out the, the body to the absolute potential And and that so much is driven by body-to-weight ratio. It's like, these guys are all skeletons these days. Even just compared with the body weight the guys were carrying 10 years ago, let alone 20.
2: Uh, You know, but there's one obvious skeleton that that throws a wrench in that, or non-skeleton, and that's Pogacar. You know, he doesn't strike me as, like, abnormally uh, cut, you know? So... Yeah. I mean, when you look at, uh, like, like you said, James, you know, Pagatier, he's been a,
1: he's been a freak on the bike winning since he was a teenager. So has this guy been doping since he was a teenager? You know, you have to give, I think in the context of the times today, I mean, if, if he's doping, then that probably would mean everyone's doping. I mean, you know, he is winning this, this tour by quite a bit just hmm. based on circumstances of the race if that guys crash out, but last year's tour, you know, he won it really on the last day. Um, and plus uh, you know, when he came became pro, I think he was thirteenth in his first World uh, Tour stage race of the Tour Down Under. And since then, I don't think he's been out of the top ten. And he's he's usually on the podium or wins every stage race that he starts. I think his his winning percentage is Merxian. It's like seventy uh, percent of all races he starts, he wins.
2: He's an animal. He's a beast, like you said, and and he's been that since he was a teenager and at, at every level. And you know, I remember you know, back in the day, uh, certain you know DS's. Well, they would let it. They wouldn't, if if they thought a rider was an amateur and, and was 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 doping, already kind of full on. They wouldn't be real interested. That wasn't always because they weren't interested in having their riders dope, but the idea was that if they're already doping in, at fifteen or sixteen or seventeen or eighteen, there's no room to improve, uh, with with chemical that's <laughs> a, abuse. That's how twisted. Know? The logic was in those You know, days. and that that says how, how twisted the logic was. So, and and you know. If, if in in the most abstract sense of thinking, he was uh, he was on the juice when he was fifteen or sixteen, well, when he gets to the big leads and gets to the level he's at now, ninety nine point nine percent of the time, he would not be able to continue with that kind of performance. Mm. He, you know that would only give you know it would he would have finally met his match, and that's not at all what's happened. And we've seen quite the, obvious, the opposite. He's just been winning. Consistently at the same level against the competition when he was 15, or 16, 18, like I said, or whatever. You know, I said you know, uh, Tour de l'Avenir is the Tour de France of the under 23s, and he won that, and he's been winning, winning consistently without strong teams. I mean, Slovenia never had a strong amateur team, or you know, whatever. He was going to the Tour de l'Avenir with the best French amateur teams, the best Italian amateur teams of the day, the best Belgian amateurs, the best, you know, and and beating them quite, you know, in a single-handedly which is something that he was able to do last year in the tour and I, i don't and then i think you know this year his tour team was not as experienced as some of them um but they've certainly stepped up to to par which makes it even easier for him then to go on the attack and and whatever they've been you know ridden surprisingly well
1: all right well thanks for the conversation let's wrap this up james i'm going to ask you on get you on record here does cav match Merckx's 34 win record and does he surpass it during this tour?
2: I'm going to say yes. I, after yesterday's ride, I think he's going to um, make it through the mountains. Now, I think that ride gave him a huge confidence. Um, I don't know that he's finished nine days of consecutive stages in, in a number of years. Um, I think you have that factoid, but I forget. But uh, I think that was the day where it was all on the line and getting through yesterday was huge. He's going to have some time to recover here. Obviously, he's got to get through the wrong two stage. But I think that's gonna. I just think that's gonna be easier than what we just saw. So uh, I think he's gonna. I think I think he's gonna keep the green jersey. And in doing so, I think he's gonna win at least two stages. I'm not gonna answer about Merckx.
1: Yeah, yeah. Actually, I agree with you. Too. Two more stages. I saw yesterday was was absolutely huge. I personally didn't think he was gonna make it out of out of the uh, Alps, especially with the bad weather. But now you know, there's there's still the possibility that he could match Merckx's record and still not get out of the Pyrenees because we do have a couple of transition stages. So the possibility is. He can match the record, maybe even pass the record, and still not get to Paris. So I, I was I was kind of uh, not optimistic about it, but now uh, yesterday changed my point of view as well. Anyway, thanks for listening, and we'll catch up to you later on the Tour de France
2: from Valdezera and one nice hotel. Today's
0: episode brought to you by Inside Tracker. When you like what you do, like running. Bike racing enjoying the great outdoors, and you want to do it for life, Inside Tracker can help you. Inside Tracker uses their patented algorithm to analyze your body's data and provide you with a clear picture of what's going on inside you to offer you science back recommendations for positive diet and lifestyle changes. Right now, you can get 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store by going to insidetracker.com forward slash Vela News. That is Inside Tracker com forward slash Villa News. Thank you so much to Inside Tracker. Let's get back to the show.
1: All right, let's turn this bad boy on. Here we are in Kousa, You know, start of the real fireworks. But yesterday, kind of a downer day for the team. Talk us through what happened yesterday with Primus. Uh, I think um,
3: towards the end he he felt that uh, he was really. Uh, on the limit and, and still really suffering from the the crashes. It, I mean, it's one thing to make it through a, a, a TT effort and where you just have to push, but uh, yesterday it was so fast all day and uh, the body I think just wasn't recovering. So uh, yeah, for him it's it's uh, a disappointment and and for all of us too. You know, we're we're always uh, behind him and and we before the race we, we wanted wanted uh, go for something with with Primos, but. Um, yeah, we're all realistic and and now we just have to shift the the focus. So
1: I mean, yesterday we saw that the team didn't go back to try to help him come back. Was that already on the radio when he was starting to suffer early, earlier in the stage?
3: Yeah, he told uh Jonas and Stevie just to, uh yeah, look after themselves and um yeah, unfortunately I wasn't there anymore to to help him. I was already didn't have the best day, so um uh, and, and Mike was there a bit after, from the break to, to help him, but uh, yeah, when when you feel like that, it's... Uh, there's not much you can do. No, no.
1: What's it like around the dinner table now? I mean, you guys came in here, you know, all gunned up to do like last year, and now suddenly a bad crash, bad luck, and the whole story changes.
3: Yeah, it's okay. I mean, the spirits are still high. Uh, I think we all know that that, that sort of thing can happen. Um, and you, you just have to keep going. Uh, for sure, the, the tour's not over. There's there's all, a lot of other things we can do. Uh, so it's a it's, uh, different focus for sure, but um, yeah, I, I'd say overall it's it's still pretty positive.
1: And it's day-to-day for Primoz or is he gonna try to stay
3: in the race? Yeah, well, I, I think he'll just try to get through today um, and then uh, get through the to the rest day and, and see how he's feeling.
1: And uh, of course, you guys have Jonas as well as Wout uh, still up there. You guys can obviously just pivot towards them.
3: Yeah, yeah. Um, Wout's still in a good spot. Uh, Jonas, Stevie's not uh, too far behind either. So, uh, yeah, with how the race is going and, and tactically, it's it's uh, anything can happen. And I think uh, a lot of the other teams and riders are interested in, in racing from afar, uh, from a ways out. So uh yeah it doesn't matter if you're you're three minutes behind or not it's still uh, a, a good situation to be in
1: I mean the buzz is that maybe Pagachar's team is not so strong I mean how do you guys would you guys pick up yesterday just in that long hard stage and that break and the whip away at the end
3: uh I, I
1: think they just
3: uh, missed the move when it went and it was a strong move so uh it, it, I think for any team it, it would be hard to, to bring bring back um but uh, for sure teams want to want to expose the the weaknesses if they have them and and see what they can do because of course Pogacar has shown that he's he's the strongest guy so uh if if he's isolated then then maybe it's a different situation but I guess we'll see today
1: and how does this change things for you I mean uh suddenly do you have a different role or is it kind of the same no a
3: different role for sure I mean uh just got to look for opportunities when they're there um uh, it's it's different when you're riding for the the win uh, versus um, you know of course yeah we we can shoot for the the win still or the podium but uh, yeah so for sure maybe uh, try for some breakaways and things like that
1: how are you coming into this tour compared to last year? Do you feel better, the same, or how, how are you? Oh, I don't know. It's hard. To, I
3: mean, in, in training, I always feel good. So uh, uh, I think it's just the races that, uh, you know, sometimes you feel bad, and then in the race, you're, you're good, and, and the other way around. So, um, yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, now we're getting into your preferred
1: terrain, uh, the Alps. Yeah, uh,
3: yeah. Uh, it, I mean, uh I think even last year I wasn't so good in the in the first and second week. I had a lot of days where I was really suffering, some bad days. So, uh, yeah, I don't I don't like to compare too much to other years. But um, yeah, even if I'm uh, really shit these first mountain stages, it's it's similar to how it was last year in the Tour. So, you, you know, I can't read too much into it.
1: Hey, did you guys have a chance to? Have you ever been on Mont 2 before? We're doing a double ascent. Have you ridden it before? I've I've just gone up to the the chalet
3: uh, in a race, but um, yeah, it's really steep there. Yeah. Up to that point, at least.
1: Historic climb. It'd be interesting to race it twice. Yeah,
3: yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. I think that'll be a, a tough day. Um, yeah, if it's hot, it'll be it'll be really hard. So um, yeah, looking forward to it.
1: Right on. Thanks for the time. Yeah, no problem. We'll see honey. you around. Cheers, man.
4: Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Have a good one. All right, Matthew,
0: Okay. Now joining the podcast is American Lawson Craddock. Lawson is over in Spain preparing for the Olympic games and the rest of his season. But like many of us, he's also watching the Tour de France. Lawson, thanks for making time for us on the
4: podcast. Yeah. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. So I'm always curious when um, riders are preparing for other events during the Tour de France, how you carve, whether or not you carve out time to watch the race. I know some riders do, some riders don't. Sounds like this year you are actually making it a point to watch the race.
4: Yeah, I mean it's actually been a couple of years since I've I've been at the tour. Um, so like for a couple of years, it's kind of pretty frustrating to to sit on the couch and watch it. Um, but I've always actually been more or less back in back in Texas when the tour is going on, and then and the throes of training. So in Texas, I'm generally out the door pretty early at like six thirty, and then so by the time you know the stage finishes, I'm usually still out on the bike, and then uh, actually very rarely watch the tour. But this year I've been in, been in Europe the whole time, and. Um. Yeah, the first day I kind of turned it on, and I was just like, "Geez, this is insane." <laughs> it's kind of just kept me, uh, kept me entertained for the last ten days. But it's been, golly, it's been a hell of a race. <laughs> <laughs> so, as our armchair
0: Tour de France analyst, someone who's been in the race, been in a lot of races, um. You know, there's the crashes, there's the dominance of Pogacar, there's Cavendish. What are some of the – when you just look at the racing, what are some of the the things that pop out to you about this year's tour that are perhaps different or noteworthy or just sort of like, you know, stuff we don't see all the time at the Tour de France?
4: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's obviously – it's this year's – kind of a lot different than, than what the Peloton has become used to at the last almost year and a half of racing due to COVID. Um, it's almost like this year at the Tour, it's, I don't know, it's like the first time fans have been out in full force, like watching the race. And and obviously, we saw the pretty spectacular crash in the first couple of days uh, with the spectator and the, the sign and everything. But uh, to me, that's, that's kind of the biggest thing that, that pops out. And, and also just like, I think – you know, while it does excite the Pel- Peloton, I think it just also adds that, that level level of stress that, you know, maybe we haven't seen in a couple years. You have people shouting your name and shouting for you, like, every step of the way. Um, and when in the last 18 months it's just been basically dead quiet on the side of the road, you – yeah, of course, that, that G's you up and gets you going. So, I, I think, to me, that's kind of been the, the biggest thing that's that stood out for me at this year's tour. Um I think it adds a lot of excitement to the race. You know, We see Pojakar just seeing these long bombs just displaying his dominance. And, and you know, you don't want to say that he's won the tour already, but you can tell he's almost taking the wind out of everyone else's sails and having, just hit the first rest day. <laughs> so here's one thing I wanted to bounce off of you, because to me this has seemed a
0: little strange at this year's tour, but it might be like this um, all the time, which is that, you know, I feel like in the past years of the tour, we see a Yumbo Visma, Last year, you know, really ride dominantly at the front or, you know, back a few years back, you know, Team Sky, Tim Ineos controlling the peloton, even on sort of hilly days and on sort of innocuous days and no shots fired at UAE Team Emirates. They've shown themselves to be a pretty strong team in the mountains. But God, it seems like nobody has really picked up the mantle as, like, the dominant tour uh, team day in, day out. And to me, it seems like on some of these mountain days, it's like I'll flick things on and there's already some huge breakaway up the road or tons of attacks and tons of chaos. And, I mean, is that is am I, am I daydreaming thinking that that's a little bit different than what we've seen at the Tour in years
4: past? I mean, I, I feel the same way. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, I will say that when you do race a Tour, you're actually – I mean, the years I've raced I've never been so far removed of actually what's happening in the race um, so those years that I, I couldn't even tell you what, what happened or who, who was even like dominating the stages but um, yeah I mean I feel like this year it's the same thing I'll, I'll turn it on and you know a little graphic will come up and say virtual GC and it'll just be the race will be completely up on its head and I'm just like confused you know you, you feel bad because you, you almost feel like you need to actually be watching like every second of the stage just to get a, a good grasp of what's going on. Um, but it's, I mean, it's crazy. I mean, it's, it's never been, yeah, I, I feel like coming into the first rest day, the race has never been like, you know, so far decided, but so out of control at the same time, you know, it's clear Car is like the, you know, dominant, you know, no one can even hold a candle to him. but you look at the race outside of that and, and, you know, maybe, UAE, well, yeah, like you said, while they are very strong, like they, they don't ride like Jumbo or, or Indios does. They just kind of do their own race and trust that Car is kind of going to just destroy everyone at the end. So it allows for just, you know, already these massive breakaways getting away and, and and, and you know, maybe unexpected stage winners. And and now you look at the top five in GC and, and you're just like, what this is just nothing what I would have expected 10 days ago.
0: Now, you've done a lot of grand tours in your day. And I have to imagine you've done some grand tours that have felt pretty wide open, you know, where there have been, you know, maybe a few teams that are on equal footing, but no one who's just right stomping on the race day in, day out. And you're a breakaway guy. So, when you're in a situation like that as a breakaway guy, I mean, are you just licking your chops? Like, what, how does that change the dynamic of racing when you're in a grand tour that feels more wide open?
4: Yeah, uh, definitely, you know, being someone that searches for breakaways, it definitely makes your job a lot easier because you can almost just pick and choose the stages of, okay, like, yeah, this is most likely the day, like a day that the break's going to go. And out of the 10 remaining days, you know, you have X amount of sprint days. So, you know, you use those as rest days. And then basically every other day is just a, just an opportunity. And I think what we see now is like, you know, almost, almost every, every day that they have left that, that isn't a sprint day is probably a good day for the break. But on the flip side of that, you got to also realize that, you know, there's no way that Anyos and, and, and Jumbo while, you know, maybe they lost Roglic. Like we're not just gonna, uh, you know, just, just ride it off and let Pojakar win. You know, they, they have to do something drastic. And and so I think that's really what, what I'm excited for when I look forward to the next 10 days is that, um, you know just something at some point will will just explode the race and and indius has shown that they have the, the team and they have the depth to, to outright anyone um maybe they don't have the strongest guy in the race anymore but all that says is that they have to try a different tactic and and you know when a team of that stature wants to you know cause chaos it's yeah, it's hell in the peloton, but it's it's great on the couch.
0: <laughs> oh, I like this. I like this, Lawson. You're breathing new excitement and new life into this Tour de France for me. And now I'm eagerly awaiting the uh, Pyrenees and some of the hilly stages in between. Because you know, we kind of saw this at the beginning of the Giro this year, where Bernal was so strong so early and carved out a pretty good advantage on his rivals. And it did seem like uh, the GC was pretty set up. And then in the last week... Uh, Adam Yates goes on the attack and Bernal starts to crack and we did see some real excitement breathed into the race and it really came down to those riders and those teams who felt like they you know had that week three in them to go for it and so I, I'm with you man I think that there's got to be some teams and some riders right now saying sort of circling the wagons and saying okay first part of the event didn't go great for us we're in a hole but you know hey, it's a three-week race. People get tired and in week three. We see this every single year, so let's try and hatch something and, and try to go for it.
4: Yeah. I mean, in these teams that have won in the past, too, it's like what does second actually mean to them? You know, it's not going to move the needle for them. You know, so so they're sitting there right now thinking like, man, we have we have absolutely nothing to lose. You know, for us, second or seventh, it doesn't make a difference. So, yeah, I think that's what, what I'm pretty excited about. I remember the 2019 Vuelta. We hit stage stage seventeen. I'll remember it forever, but it was like the longest day of the race, 230, 240K, and and there was a little bit of wind, but like no one really like I don't know, everyone's a bit cautious about it, thinking we're we're so far in the race. And then next thing you know, the neutral stops and race starts and forty of us just roll away. And the next thing you know we had we had seven or eight minutes and G C guys are in there and Jumbo's chasing flat out behind. And 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 so those are the days that yeah, that maybe you look on paper and, and maybe some of these teams are looking on paper and thinking, OK, you know, this is a team that actually could be the perfect day to do something completely unexpected and, and my only chance. So.
0: Oh, I had forgotten about that. Our memories are so short in pro cycling, but that was such an amazing day of racing. The crosswind day and Quintana was up there and Yumbo was behind. And oh, my God, what a thrilling day of racing that was.
4: Yeah, no, I won't forget that ever.
0: <laughs> so, time we're uh, recording this Monday, first rest day. You know, you are over in Spain training, and you are tra- you're training to get ready for the Olympics. Um, first of all, congratulations for being named to the Olympic team. But, like, what does the next uh, few days and weeks look like for you as you get ready for Tokyo?
4: Yeah, thanks. No, it's it's definitely a big honor to be selected for the Olympics. It's like a, I mean, it's it's definitely a lifelong goal of mine. It it preceded all all cycling uh yeah cycling related goals for me so um you know you, you always grow up and no matter who you are you're always watching the olympics in the every couple of years and so yeah to get the chance to to go and race and, and represent the united states is is extremely special um but yeah i'm back in gerona uh now I, I came straight back after after nationals which which went pretty well and then um well, well it's disappointing to to miss out on the tour again for the third year in a row is is kind of consolation the fact that I do have the Olympics ahead of me. And and that's been my biggest driving uh, factor in the last couple of weeks. So, um, more or less, I'm I'm two weeks out from from leaving for Tokyo and and right in the thick of um, the final preparations, I guess. So, I'm not sitting here trying to reinvent the wheel in terms of training. So, uh, you know, I've worked closely with my my coach, Jim Miller, for – almost 10 years now. And so we know exactly what works for me. And, you know, at at this point it's just kind of putting your nose to the grindstone and, and, and trusting the process. So, um, it's been fun. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to getting Tokyo and, and, you know, racing. That Olympics
0: versus Tour de France dynamic is an interesting one in uh, World Tour men's cycling. You know, in women's cycling, it's so obvious, like the Olympics is the biggest, biggest thing. It's the pinnacle of the sport, same with mountain biking and track. Whereas in, you know, in men's road racing, I think it's the only cycling discipline where you can look at and say, hey, the Olympics is very important and it's up there. But there are some guys who would trade success at the Tour de France, be it a stage winner an overall for, you know, success at the Olympics. And every year we see guys sort of juggle the opportunity. Hey, do I want to Like follow what my trade team wants me to do and get ready for the Olympics, potentially win a stage or contribute to the overall, or do I really want to target success in Tokyo? And it it really seems like it comes down to an individual um, choice on that end. Um, What did that look like for you knowing that, hey, you know, you have this obligation to a team, you might be doing the Tour de France, you might have goals Team-wise, that uh, deviate you from the Olympics versus this very individual goal of wanting to make the Olympic team and do well in Tokyo and also do well at the events that could help qualify you for Tokyo. How did you split that those the, those different focus?
4: Yeah, I mean, personally for me, it was, it's been about the Olympics, um, hundred uh, percent. Really, since the end of 2019, I I, I really felt like I was kind of coming into my own. And 2019, I, I finished sixth at the the world. Time trial championships, and I said, okay, you know, like I, I still really feel like I have room to grow in this discipline, and and for me, the next step is is improving and and you know trying to make the Tokyo team, and you know, obviously, COVID COVID happened and and things got postponed, but um, it made for a pretty stressful year, um, and it just in terms of uh, obviously with COVID and all the side effects of that, but but just in terms uh, of, of you know having the olympics on the horizon was was tough um you know like i almost feel like after 2020 it's like you you lose this year of results and then for me i had a pretty subpar start to 2021 with a tough crash and try to bianchi that kind of knocked me back for for quite a bit and um and so it was definitely uh (laughs) it was a lot of hope and prayer that you know i could make the team and and you know, I could I could lean on you know my past, especially my past TT results to to earn me a spot, and and fortunately it did, and then was able to make the team, and then back that up with with winning the national championships. But um, yeah, for me it's always just having an eye on the Olympics, and and that's one thing I talked to my coach about quite a bit was that you know okay like regardless if I'm selected or not, you know we're we're going to train train for that event, and you know because I know if I can train for the olympics you know obviously it's going to put me in good form anyway so um yeah i think uh when i look back on like really the last last two years and even going beyond like going further than that than when I missed out in, in Rio it's always been really just an eye on the, on the 2020 Tokyo Olympics so this
0: TT course um, looks like it's a little bit shorter than some of the Olympic TT courses we've seen in the past I, I called up Kristen Armstrong and asked her about it the other day and she said you know this thing this could benefit a real power rider um, you know it's got some hills and climbs I mean what's your overall assessment of the TT course and, and what does your training look like to specify for this specific event
4: yeah the TT course Courses, you know, I, I'm foaming at the mouth to, to get out there and race. I honestly don't think uh, don't think there's a better course, you know, more suited towards my abilities. Um, yeah, I've had strong TT results all across the board in the last couple of years, but I think where I really excel are these maybe longer efforts that are, you know, just require a bit more power. Um, looking at the Welton 2019 Worlds and 2019 um, Tour of California, but yeah, definitely. Rate, definitely time trials that maybe require a little bit less speed and a little bit more power are definitely my strong suits. So um, for me, that's yeah Got that has me really excited. Um, in terms of training, yeah, I'm, I'm working really closely with with our trainer here at EF, um, Nate Wilson, uh, who I was teammates with quite a long long time ago and on on Axel Merck's team and and you know know quite well and, and been working on a lot of specific stuff with him behind the motor and, and, you know, getting out, um, you know, having him support me and, and stuff like that. So I think that's really been helpful, but I've also been doing just, you know, quite a bit, quite a bit of lifting on the, on the TT bike. So, um, I think between those two, I, have had a lot of really good success, uh, in the past and, Yeah, I think they'll both put me in a really good spot for for Tokyo.
0: Oh, I love it. Some Zwift training for the uh, TT course. All those Zwifters out there, if you have come across Lawson Craddock and tried to hold his wheel during uh, a Zwift session in the last few weeks, chances are the reason you got blown to smithereens was because he was doing an effort uh, leading up to the uh, the Olympics.
4: Unfortunately, it always seems like it's the other way around (laughs) when I'm on Zwift, but... No, it's good. It's fun. I mean, I've, I've always been a big fan of the platform, and, and I, I think it's such an incredible tool for training. So,
0: Well, Lawson, we are going to uh, continue to follow you in the lead up to the Olympics, and then we will be watching and cheering for you in Tokyo here in a couple of weeks.
4: Yeah, thank you. No, I'm, I'm really excited. So looking forward to, yeah, watching the rest of the tour and then, uh, yeah, getting over to Tokyo and, and seeing what it's all about.